Welcome back for part two of the panel discussion about the new play Photograph 51. The play is about Rosalind Franklin, Watson, and Crick and the race to figure out the structure of DNA. This production runs at the Ensemble Studio Theater here in New York till November 21st. At the end of part one, New York Times science reporter Nicholas Wade had just been rebutted by biologist and Franklin scholar Lynn Osmond Elkin. We'll pick it up with Wade's response to Elkin's rebuttal. The other voices you'll be hearing are playwright Anna Ziegler, crystallographer Helen Berman, and moderator Stuart Firestein. Yeah, I, uh, I think the, the problem with uh, <clears throat> uh, saying that uh, Rosalind was ill-treated uh, is that there's absolutely no evidence uh, that she herself believed this to be the case. She, you know, she, she was definitely in a position to uh, complain if she wished. She just arranged a, a new job. She was leaving the, the King's College Department to go to Birkbeck College. Um, we know that she complained vociferously about things she thought was um, were unfair, mm-hmm. like being paid less than by the MRC, being paid less mm-hmm. than men holding the same um, job. Uh, but she never, ever complained about this. Moreover, she became very close friends uh, with Watson and with Crick. But she was unlikely if, in fact, she uh, felt they had uh, stolen her discovery. She must have known that they were using uh, her data because there were no other data. Uh, her, her data are acknowledged in Crick's uh, paper, and again in the second paper he published in Nature uh, a month later. What prevented Crick from giving a much fairer acknowledgement to Ross and Franklin in, in, in the original Nature paper, which he wished to do, was, was that he had to negotiate this with Wilkins. So in his original draft, he says, we thank Ross and Franklin for her beautiful uh, photo of, uh, of DNA, which makes quite clear that this was what he was relying on. Now, at Wilkins' suggestion, he crossed out the phrase beautiful photo. So it, it, it was not an adequate acknowledgement, but it was a very different story than, than, than stealing her d- uh, discovery, which is the way it's been portrayed. Nicholas, you're absolutely right. There was an earlier, more accurate acknowledgement. It wasn't to Franklin. It was to Wilkins and Franklin. And it did say very beautiful photographs, which only meant Franklin's. And Wilkins was the one who crossed it out. There are actually six drafts. Very interesting to see that. And also to see how weak, false, even the first two or three were before Wilkins got it to decimate it more compared to the draft they wrote about their first model that they very, very clearly acknowledged Franklin. So... So she isn't doing too badly. And I think I should point out that Crick in his later papers, when he didn't have to sort of negotiate things mm-hmm. with Wilkins, um, said quite plainly uh, in his paper for the Proceedings uh, of the World Society that this our discovery depended on uh, on, on the results from, from Keynes. So I, I forget if he specifically mentioned that. But it was quite clear that she was the, that this, this data was the source of the discovery. I didn't let me call it the paper. I didn't, again, credit allocation is always a problem in science, particularly when you have many people involved. But when you look back at all the historical circumstances surrounding this particular problem, although Franklin did not get exactly the recommendation which we all now think she deserved, she got a very big chunk of it. That, at least, and I'm sure that was her view too, or she would have behaved very differently. So, so not to belabor this too much further, I, what's interesting about this, of course, is this is a really important discovery. I mean, this was a critical discovery that had to be made. Now, it would have been made one way or the other. I, I kind of agree with you that Pauling was probably the odds-on favorite. And indeed, I would go so far as to say that 
had Watson and Crick not come into um, uh, Roslyn's photograph by hook or crook, whichever way it was, they would have lost the race entirely. All, all both of the English labs. And it would now be called Pauling Helix. <clears throat> when Watson, Crick, Franklin, and Wilkins would all be unknowns to us today, or largely so. Um, that's just my personal theory, mind you, about this. But, but I think one could make a case for that because Pauling was quite close and, and very smart, um, and knew where he was going. So, so the interesting thing though, I think is, is this dynamic in the laboratory? Um, and I'm assuming this is kind of what interested you in the writing because it seems to become more and more a part of the play as the play goes on. The impossibility of it. I'm particularly struck by the one moment when Gosling says, here was a moment when it could have gone one way, but then that was gone. Yeah. It was actually Rosalind's fault, it seems. Yeah. By I your mean, writing. I, am I, I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at least what, what drew me to this, to the, to the material was the fact that I did not think that Rosalind Franklin was a, a you know, sort of wronged person. I, I mean, I, I, um, it, it seemed to me that there was so much that, uh, that came from her that, 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 you know, interfered with the scientific process. Um, so I, I it, so it's interesting to me that it felt that the play felt to you like it was sort of continuing to mythologize her or, or, I mean, at least that was not my intention to show her in that, in that light or as someone who, you know, was just a victim or ill-treated or, uh, I mean, I, I guess I, I find what's so interesting about it, uh, you know, the idea that if, if certain things had been different, maybe, maybe the, I mean, as you said, um, if someone hadn't seen the photograph or if there hadn't been the misunderstanding with Wilkins when she first got there with Randall about whether she was supposed to be in charge, you know, those are the, those are the things that sort of the seeds that then sprouted what ended up being the, the story. But there are so many other stories that could have happened. And that was what I was thinking about a lot as I was writing this play. So when I was when I saw the play, I thought that um, the way in which Rosalind was portrayed was perhaps harsher than I thought. Um, I, I didn't think of her in, in quite that difficult personality. And on the other hand, I think it was important for for the play. And I thought that what it was really for me, what it was showing is that she was in a a terrible environment for her. I mean, it isn't that Wilkins was a terrible person or Randall was a terrible person or anything like that. It just was bad chemistry, which sort of prevented her from from thinking clearly and being perhaps as creative as she might have been. And I say that because not having known her and not being a Rosalind Franklin <clears throat> scholar as, as you are, I look to what happened when she went to Birkbeck, where... She just blossomed and she did incredible work and everyone who worked with her loved her and respected her and, and you hear only good things about, um, and, and she was, you know, she worked with Aaron Poog who, she was his supervisor. He was, um, uh, and, and he subsequently won a Nobel Prize and, and Oling spoke well of her. So I think what happened is that in, Kings, she was in an environment that just didn't suit her. 
I don't think it was anyone's fault. It was bad chemistry, which gives you an inability to do your best work. And you go to a place where, and she must, she obviously recognized it because she quit. And she went to Birkbeck and she flourished at Birkbeck and she did really well. So obviously she was capable of, and before when she was at, um, in, in Paris, she did very well and everybody thought she was terrific. So I, I think you did portray, although maybe you made her a, a much fiercer character than she really was. I don't know because I didn't know her. Um, but I think it, it, it showed what happens when you're in a bad environment and how everything is misunderstood and you can't really do the, the, the best work you might be able to do. I'm, I'm looking for a quote here in a paper that was um, sorry, written by her sister, Jennifer. Jennifer. It's just a very interesting thing that says, um, quote, her work on viruses was of lasting benefit to mankind. This is what is inscribed in her tombstone. There's no mention of DNA. Right. Now, granted, one could say, well, one could revise that because in 1958, when, when she passed away, perhaps we didn't really yet know how important DNA was. But, but I think it was pretty clear. And yet, and yet it was her work on the tobacco mosaic virus that, that was what presumably even she determined should be on her tombstone. It was rather interesting. I, I had a, a question, maybe it's a little, little bit of a sciencey question, if you don't mind about this, but but one of the things that comes out a bit here and there, um, and I think could could even come out more perhaps, is this notion of the difference between an experimentalist and a theoretician, which we still have to some extent today. It was, it was very common in physics, and many of the people involved in this were, of course, physicists. Um, this sort of tension between experimentalists and theorists. Uh, the experimentalists have their data, and the data is what speaks. They submerge their ego to the data, and this is all that counts. And theorists are a little bit more like cowboys in a way. You know, they have ideas. They, they who's the, somebody a theorist in the audience? How many theorists? How many experimentalists? And so, um, but that seemed to be what this, what the group. I mean, you could call the King's group the experimentalists, and the. And the Cambridge group, the theorists. I mean, I know it wasn't a perfect. Yeah, it's, thing this that is way, very but was actually. There a do you think that way? In 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 the kind of crystallography they were doing, and even in the kind of crystallography that we do, three dimensional um, single crystal crystallography, the the um, the dividing line between theory and experiment is is not as clear as as uh, people would like to say. Um, even when you have a beautiful three-dimensional structure of hemoglobin, to do that you have to make a model. And that's mm -hmm. theory, okay? You don't actually see in, in the macromolecular crystallography, you do not actually see every atom. In small molecule crystallography, say, of uh, uh, some very small sugar or salt, you will see every atom. But in large molecule, you absolutely have to make a model. And um, Rosalind would have had to make a, a model, a three-dimensional model from the data. I think in her case, it was when, when she decided it was the right time to do it. But she would have had to model it, because how else are you going to get it? Yeah. And I think what Watson and Crick were doing 
was doing um, modeling, but obviously they had data. It wasn't, they had a little bit, because they saw one way or the other, they saw the diffraction pattern, but they also had the data about the um, how the bases were, uh, where the hydrogens were in the bases so that, that Watson could figure out where the base pairs were, what the, the ratio between AT and GC, that's all data. It's yeah, not diffraction yeah. data, but it's data. So the, this line, and it's becoming fuzzier now, again, uh, about the line between experiment and model. So when you get a three-dimensional structure of a, uh, a protein, you are modeling it. So I think, I think the, the sort of black and white, it's not, mm -hmm. this is, this, there's a So you don't think that had anything to do with the tension, though? Well, I think the tension... I mean, it seemed that Watson and Crick were a bit impatient with... They with were impatient Williams. because they wanted to get on with getting the model faster and before they had all the necessary data. But nobody had, neither she nor they, had the necessary data to get every single atom yeah. with that method. It couldn't happen. So... I mean, she, she at one point got very wrapped up in making measurements with this... Patterson function, which yes. I looked up and it scared the, scared me to death. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, so so I could see where, but you know, you well, could you spend endless to, you, hours. You doing get your this data and, and you, you do various kinds. And back then, there were a very limited number of things you could actually do with the limited amount of data they had, mm -hmm. um, or that she had. Um, and ultimately, she was going to have to, uh, and and with fiber especially, there were no. She really had to make a model, and she probably was making a model. I mean, you had to. That that would mm -hmm. be the result is a model. Yes. Sure. Um, oh, the, the Patterson function really? Are you sure? sure? No, I no way. I'm going to speak about the details of Patterson. It scares me really. It scares you, believe me. I can um, tell you. I can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is very very difficult <laughs> mathematics to do a Patterson, and what I did see in her archives. Uh, were letters in response to her doing the first ever three-dimensional Patterson. You have to understand, she wasn't in Helen's lab where she had a computer to help. She was sitting there with an adding machine doing not only a Patterson, but a three-dimensional Patterson. It was absolutely brilliant work, and it was acknowledged as brilliant work. And that's the kind of work that they were all pulling her for being stuck on the A, which incidentally Randall assigned to her and the B to Wilkins. And uh, it's also interesting that uh, she then later talks about the anti-helical uh, picture she got where she analyzed with the three-dimensional Patterson as being a fortunate accident, I believe it's a quote, because that's what got her to get the most accurate measurements of the unit cell, which is how she described it in the MRC report. The same MRC report that Crick commented was brilliant and whose measurements were essential for them figuring it out. Um, so I wanted to ask you sort of a question about that. The, um, so think about how to phrase this exactly. So, so well, some question about the, the historical value of, of this. So, so Franklin was busy making his measurements. I think there's a quote from Crick. I don't know if it's in this new correspondence or an older bit of correspondence, that he was actually quite glad that he'd never seen the A data. It's in the new one. It's in the That's new right. one, yeah. yeah. So, so I think it's very interesting. So for those of you, sure many of you are familiar with it, but some may not be, uh, quite recently a, a, a rather large trove of Francis Crick's papers, thought to have been lost, uh, came to light. So it turned out that he shared an office for many years with Sidney Brenner, 
who worked at the MRC and was still working, actually, well into his 80s. And they shared an office, and somehow or another their papers became mixed together. And Crick thought a secretary had thrown them out or something like that and lost track of them. And just recently, Brenner gave 33 boxes of his papers to the Cold Spring Arbor Laboratory archivist. And among them, they found nine boxes, I think, or something, of Francis Crick's letters that had thought been thought to have been lost from this rather crucial period, if I'm not mistaken. There's a beautiful article in Nature of September 29th, which I think is even now available online, probably, right? Yes, that, that's it. You can hold that up for people. It's, it's worth to look at. Um, it's actually quite easy to read. I mean, you, you don't have to be a scientist to read it, and it's rather interesting. And then Nicholas also wrote a piece in the Times on it. Um, and one of the quotes was Wilkins saying then, that he was, he was actually realized now how fortunate he was never That's right. to have seen the A version. Good it was the B photo that he saw because the A version was quite confusing and would easily have thrown him off That's right. or given him pause at least. Am I, yes? There was, there was a reason why he said that. It goes back to the history of Linus Pauling figuring out the Alpha Helix and Bragg had been painstakingly doing data and, uh, Linus Pauling got sick. He was by popping vitamins and pills. And he played with paper dolls and bombs and bed, and he came up with the Alpha Helix. Anybody Crick, doing a play on Linus Pauling? <laughs> and Crick repeatedly talked about how he learned from that and how Bragg learned from that not to worry about if you had some data that didn't quite uh, help you out with your overall feeling about things. And that's what he's talking about, that if you have a big picture that you really think is accurate, if you find some information that points in a different direction, don't forget it, but don't let it hold you back and figure out your big picture, which I think was part of Crick's... And Crick was the genius of all of these people. I mean, nobody else held the candles to Crick and his ability to visualize things. And um, he knew that this was a spurious piece of data, and Franklin turned lemons into lemonade by analyzing it and coming up with such precise measurements of the unit cell. And, um, you know, but she, it certainly wasn't the mythology of that darn woman, which is how Wilkins always described her, didn't know what she had, and she put it in her desk for seven months. Because if you look at her notebook, she analyzed it with Hill Contraction Theory, and she started writing a B paper, you know, about it. At the end, she had her A papers written up. So she knew what she was doing, she could figure it out. She did not see absolutely critical piece of data. That's true. She didn't understand the significance of the space group. And I'll tell you, you've got to do a lot of data analysis to get to the space group, and she did that. And Franklin fan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm also a fan of Wilkins and Watson and Crick. I think Crick was the most remarkable man I've ever met. Mm. I enjoy Watson. Uh, talking to him is a trip. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't censor anything he thinks. <laughs> and his and his accomplishments are brilliant. I mean, his, what he's done with his life has been phenomenal. He's a man worthy of respect. They're all worthy of respect. And you don't have to trash anybody to give respect to anybody else in that group. So, so I guess the question... Yeah. I was going to read something. It's a little bit long, and I, I really should have sort of cut it down a little bit, but I'll just... I'll just read two or three lines of it. This was um, this, this is from an article by um, by Ann Piper, who was a friend of 
Franklin's. And at the very end of it, she writes, setting the record straight, in the last two paragraphs of the epilogue of the double helix, Watson speaks of those whom he had mentioned. I'll cut around this a little bit. All of those people, should they so desire, can indicate events and details they remember differently. But there is one unfortunate exception. In 1958, Rosalind Franklin died at the early age of 37. Since my initial impressions of her, both scientific and personal, as recorded in the early pages of this book, were often wrong, I want to say something here about her achievements. The X-ray work she did at King's is increasingly regarded as superb. The sorting out of the A and B forms by itself would, made, would have made her reputation. Even better was her 1952 demonstration using Patterson superposition methods that the phosphate groups must be on the outside of the DNA molecule. Later, when she moved to Bernal's lab, she took up work on tobacco mosaic virus and quickly extended, et cetera, et cetera, for there. Um, because I was then teaching in the States, I did not often see her as often as Francis, to whom she frequently came for advice or when she had done something very pretty, to be sure he agreed with her reasoning. By then, all traces of our early bickering were forgotten, and we both came to appreciate greatly her personal, <coughs> excuse me, her personal honesty and generosity realizing years too late the struggles that the intelligent woman faces to be accepted by a scientific world, which often regards women as mere diversions from serious thinking. Rosalind's exemplary courage and integrity were apparent to all when, knowing she was mortally ill, she did not complain, but continued working on a high level until a few weeks before her death. So that's from Watson. That's from Watson. Um, which I, I want to say something is, else positive about Watson. When I was interviewing him and I, and I said, you know, the things you say in the fellow, he looks rather misogynistic. He said, well, we're all little boys in little boy school. That's the way it was. But if you talk to some of my female graduate students, you would find that they're okay by them. So I went to AAAS meeting and I went and talked to a whole bunch of his female graduate students. And they consistently said how helpful he was and how wonderful he was as an advisor. Which is why a lot of people have evolved. They might have had rooms then. People didn't mesh. But I think highly of all of these people. And I do not think she was discriminated because she was a woman. I do not think she was discriminated against because she was a Jew. Those people didn't know she was Jewish. When people met her, they didn't know that. Even Jewish people, not just Don Casper, didn't know that. <laughs> people, people who she worked with at Berkeley, uh, I interviewed one, and he was just floored that she was Jewish. She was an incredibly complex person. And it's very hard to capture that in a play. And um, I, too, would say that it was a little bit harsh. Uh, she certainly wasn't harsh to Gosling, but she was horribly harsh to Wilkins. And I have some wonderful quotes from Gosling about that. If anyone wants to ask me about it afterwards. I'm actually a little curious about Gosling. So, so we're actually left now with two living eyewitnesses to the right. whole time. One is Watson, of course, who we know is also opinionated and, and perhaps biased in some ways and, and not in other ways. And then there's Gosling, who we never seem to hear from. I think that was Ann Sayer's second big mistake. Um, she wrote off Gosling as a big jock. And that is not, that is not true. He was a very, very intelligent observer of all of this and he really tried to mediate between the two. And um, between Margaret Pratt, Pratt Moth and Gosling, I got a much better feeling for what went on at the MRC uh, than anything I've read in any other book. And I think that Bowlby has evolved tremendously 
Uh, some of it from reading Brendan's book, some talking to me, but he does a really good job of very accurately portraying the sequences and events now better than anybody else. So much I, I'd rather forgotten about him, to tell you the truth, until he became a central character in your play, or a fairly central character in the mm-hmm. play. So what, what, how'd you figure that out? Um, what made you put? Well, I needed so much a comic foil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, he was the grad student. Uh, I mean, I mean, to be honest, it was sort of he was the person who witnessed everything, right? So it sort mm-hmm. of made sense that he would be a, a, a narrator. Um, and I and I and I think that in the play, he um, that's that's the, the that's the function he serves right now. I don't. I don't. I I, I think dramatically, he's a, he's a narrator and he's a a sort of comic foil, which is what the what the what the play needed. But I I gather that that um, in in reality he was also a very jovial and very intelligent and and uh, I mean in fact the actor playing him didn't want us to uh, to simplify him so much. I, I mean, or that he he wanted to make sure that he came off as really smart and really engaged because he said Gosling was really really smart. And he said, yes, but make sure he also comes off as a little goofy. <laughs> Just for the play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so do you want to make any final comments? We're, we're nearly out of time. We could take maybe a couple of questions um, if there's time. Which would you, you have a preference? Do you want to see what's on their minds briefly? I've got some quotes if anybody wants to. Well, are there any juicy ones? I mean, yep. could you go through very, them? Very juicy. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us a short, give us a sample. Well, he talks about how she had lovely dark eyes and they were full of vitality, but they could, of course, turn to Flintstones and spit fire at you as well. And that's what terrified Morris. This was this young woman, half his height, spitting fire at him with her every glance. And he said uh, she did reserve her most dire glances for poor Morris. And they used to say to her, it's not fair. He's scaring the pants off this poor guy. And she'd laugh about it and say, she, she'd say, oh, that's the effect he has on me. I can't help it, you know. She was a bit naughty in that sense. I think she knew half the time what she was doing. And the other half, she just couldn't help herself. <laughs> so she did, she scared him. She scared him. Um, and the other thing is, uh, even according to Watson, how the death of the helix invitation shows she was anti-helical. And it was a joke. And I said it was a joke, and he said, no, it's serious. So here he is. Um, she, she was giggling like a schoolgirl when she penned this card that chastised those helically zesty chaps. <laughs> That may sound juicy to a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it makes the grade otherwise. <laughs> she, was, she was making fun that they were making, they were saying that this death of the helix invitation was a serious thing that showed she didn't know DNA was illegal. And it was a joke, and, and Gossing was validating that it was a joke. And uh, Wilkins. And Watson and Kirk were running around saying it's helical before there was evidence that it was a helix. And that really bothered her. And that's why she was so nasty to Wilkins. And she didn't tell Wilkins about her helical data. And in her final seminar, where she maybe talked about this anti-helical stuff, Wilkins actually finally got the courage to say, 
how do you reconcile this with your beautiful photo 51? And she said, of course the B form is helical. She had only been talking about the A form, even the invitation, since A, DNA, A, crystalline. She knew what she was doing, and she couldn't quite get the end of this set. Well, we've all, all been there. I'm afraid to say. Um, maybe we'll take one or two questions. Now, I just want to say, we don't have a lot of time, so I really want questions, not statements or um, things of that nature. So I'll cut you off if you start with that, okay? I'm just warning you. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to address to the playwright. In, in the play, only Rosalind appears to be doing science. I, I recall she was the only one who had a lab notebook. Was that an intention? You mean in the King's Lab, Rosalind well, of... You never, you never see Black sitting quick doing any science. They're playing around with a model, but there's no notebooks, there's no measurements, there's no calculations. She's spending all this time in the play writing in the book, doing calculations, books, and, and Walton seems to be just sitting outside brooding and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... I don't see anyone else doing science in the play except for her. I, um, I mean, I think Watson and Crick were doing science in their way, which I was trying to convey was different than the way she was doing her science, where she was very focused on the data and the calculations, and they were, I mean, we had a much more interesting conversation about theory versus exper experimentalism, and I think the play simplifies it a little bit. Um, it clearly does. Um, so, so, so in the world of the play, she is, yes, sort of tied to her notebook, and they are more, uh, they, and they are theoretical and they don't they're not relying on 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 that sort of data in the same way or tied tied to it in the same way. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how how are any of you uh, influencers struck when you first heard about the uh, in uh, the first papers about DNA and uh, what were your main sources Well, I was a little young when those papers came out. It's hard to believe, but I was. Um, I, I must say, my view of the papers, I, I use the, I shouldn't admit this perhaps in this forum, but so I often use these papers as examples. If you read the Watson and Crick paper and then you read, I skipped the Wilkins one, but I often give the students the Watson and Crick paper followed by the Franklin and Gosling paper and their tone and quality is remarkably Different. The Watson and Crick paper is, I have to say, a work of scientific art. It it brings out. Oh, it, it is. It's just it's it's absolutely magnificent. You see immediately what they saw. It you know, it's, it's understatement where it needs to be understated and straight out where where it, it just lets you into the whole process. It lets you into the beauty of the whole molecule. And, and Franklin's paper is extremely informative, but if you're not a crystallographer, you're not going to get anywhere through this paper. It's just, you have no idea what it's actually about unless you're a true expert. And I think that's at least part of the reason that, that things have come down historically the way they have. That one paper was just so communicative, and the other two were just simply not. They were just plain old science business. And I, I think it's a lesson in, yes. in how science Ought to be done by scientists as well. That they should 
think carefully about their audience. So, and I teach, a, I, uh, over the years I've taught a course to undergraduates, and I use the story of the double helix as a way of illustrating how science is done. Uh, and we actually analyze the papers, we analyze the story of the scientists, we try to figure out what the components are um, that lead to good science by studying this story, because this story has all the pieces. Yeah. And so the original articles, as well as all the things that led up to it, and we, I, I use the double helix. Watson's book, The Double Helix, is the first reading. This is for freshmen. So they can sort of dig into this, and then we piece it apart, pull it apart, and try to understand what this story is and how the discovery was made and what was important and what was not important. And it's, it's such a classic and important uh, mm. story in science, and it can, by studying it, you can learn a huge amount about, about how science is done and the actual science involved. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about your class, actually, so I'm glad you worked that in. Uh, I've I heard want, about it. I, I want to praise Lawson for more to more to answer this gentleman's question. And I remember, was, I think it was Craig who said, you know, we weren't just goofing off. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, reading papers, arguing about what the papers meant. They did a lot of work. It might have not been data collection. It was library information connection collection, and then arguing about what it meant to help figure it out. They put their minds in the frame of reference that they could figure this out. And that was their brilliant contribution. It wasn't just building models. I, I would like to comment on, on what you said about that in the play, she appeared to be the only one doing science and the others were just sort of puttering around. I'll just remember a time when I was uh, postdoc and uh, doing crystallography, which meant mostly sitting around and talking. Uh, <laughs> because every experiment took forever, and every calculation took forever, and that was in 1969. And I remember a biochemist who was doing real science coming down and seeing a lot of us sitting around the table talking, and he says, you guys are just a whole bunch of philosophers. <laughs> so I think, uh, but we, we weren't, but we... Mm -hmm. You filled the time when you were waiting for results, uh, talking, thinking, making models, whatever. That that is actually more realistic, especially back then. That's uh, a very good point. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, sometimes it's very hard to see the science that's getting done. I can tell you, <laughs> I walk into my lab. Sometimes. <laughs> Anybody working here? What the <laughs> but then papers come out somehow or another. So. <laughs> So I don't know. Nicholas, did you want to say anything to that particular <laughs> question? We'll take one more question. Another question for Mr. Wade. You just said that you didn't see a story in the play that disrupted the truth. Well, the play was, was very dexterous, um, but I think simply by having chosen to focus on Rosalind, one is almost inevitably sort of drawn away from the historical account and into the mythological account. Um, so the, the suggestion of of anti-feminism, of anti-Semitism was sort of very lightly done and the play concentrated mostly on Rosalind's um, character and, and all the new stuff that has, all the new historical research has come out about it. So it's very refreshing 
in that sense, I think he did try and escape as much as possible to be stamped with larger perspective. But nonetheless, it was there. There were suggestions of anti-Semitism, which I think are completely unfounded. There were suggestions of anti-feminism, like uh, not being taken by Wilkins into the dining club. So I don't know if I didn't know whether or not women were not allowed into the dining club at King's, but I do know from Boris Judson's research that, 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 that there were a large number of, of women at King's, about a third of the department, and all of them whom Judson can reach said there was no anti-feminism that they were aware of, and they were sure they would have been aware of it if it had happened. So that's why I think even though the suggestions in the uh, play to this effect are very slight, they were probably dramatically necessary. Uh, and they followed from the, from the decision to focus just on Rosalind and not on the whole picture. I think you, you wrote this. You want the last word? <laughs> <laughs> just come see the play. Come see the play. <laughs> Thank you all. Photograph 51 runs at the Ensemble Studio Theater on West 52nd Street in Manhattan till November 21st. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.